16. We're in our last chapter in the book of Corinthians. Making our way through here. Learning about what it is to be a gospel-centered people. So as we come before the, the Word of God, let's just pray and seek Him. And trust that He will be here with us and speak and lead us. Lord, we just thank You for Your grace. And Lord, we're here this morning because of You. This local church is here because of You. Because of Your grace. Because You, Lord, have from before time began, determined that you would do great and marvelous things and you would exalt your son and you would draw people to him and form a covenant people and, and that they would come and enjoy you and be won by you. Their sins would be paid for and they could enjoy you forever. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and grace to us. We thank you for the invitation to come, to come and to drink and to come and be satisfied in you, and we thank you, Lord. It's all from you. And so we're here today because of that. And Lord, so we come to you, and we ask you to pour out your grace, and you would speak to us, and you would do what you have been doing throughout history, and you will do, and you will finish one day soon of forming your people, glorifying your name. Lord, you'll never finish doing that, never finish glorifying your name. And we look forward to the day when we will do that without hindrance in a new world as you make all things new. But Lord, we just ask for your help and your presence and your power. We ask for your Holy Spirit to lead us. Lord, I ask you for help as a weak vessel. But Lord, you're faithful and your grace is sufficient. So we just look forward to what you're going to do in this time. And we just lay this time before you, ask you to lead us. Help us in your, this, this speaking, the reading of your word, to hear you and, and in the preaching and expounding of your word, Lord, to hear you and that you would be magnified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just to give you a little background before we actually read, Paul has been moving through this letter to the Corinthians and he's been addressing different issues for the Corinthians. And there are some major themes that have come through. One would be the, the centrality, the necessity, the pervasiveness of the good news of Jesus Christ and how when that is understood and grasped, it begins to filter in and work out in every area of life. So the Corinthians have all these different issues and Paul keeps on going back essentially to Christ, the good news of Christ and all its implications. So he brings them back there each time. So now at the end of the letter, Paul is moving on to another issue it looks like that they had asked about. And he's addressing that, but we must understand that this fits into the whole picture, that to that theme of the centrality of, of the gospel, of the good news of Christ. And so he addresses them in verses 1-4 through four, where we'll be concentrating this morning, saying, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up, as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4. You may be listening and thinking, what's this? Isn't this just kind of like a little detail at the end that Paul just kind of stuck on there? You know, he had to take care of the administrative things, kind of, 
kind of like the announcement slot, you know, in our Sunday gathering, you know, just got to kind of hit on the essentials, and, and I would say no. Certainly, he does need to hit some details, but he was a, a gifted, wise man, and I think knew what he was doing, and so this section flows from the rest of the letter even. It's integral to the whole letter. It's integral to the whole theme about the Gospel and the Kingdom of God, about the truth of Christ crucified and risen, the truth of the one and only Savior, our one and only true wisdom, the one and only one whom, in whom we should boast, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, about those truths and all the workings out of, those, of that truth all the fruit, all the implications of that. And one of those implications is this section. That when the Gospel gets hold of a people, the way they handle their finances, the way they relate to one another with their finances changes. So Paul can talk about moving right from the other sections about the collection for the saints and what he's asking the Corinthians to do because he knows these are the people of God. They're being impacted. They have been impacted by the Gospel. So he can ask this and in the section he asks, and his, his sentences are kind of short and direct and to the point, but again, they fit in to the rest. Let me give you a little bit of background on this so we can understand, because they would have understood some more than just the first four verses, because there had been an interchange going on. Paul had been there for a while. He had, he had discipled them. He had taught them many things. And so when he said that this particular section, there was a context. Not only that, but they had asked about it. It says, now concerning the collection for the saints. A number of times in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, now concerning, now concerning. In, in chapter 7, he says, now concerning the things you wrote. So there had been a letter exchange and, and, and other exchanges before that because he had lived with them. And so in that letter, they had asked about this. So we don't know what it said, but Paul's responding to that. So there's a context. So let me help us to kind of understand that context that we might better understand kind of the, the impact of this section. You see, the collection for the saints, it turns out, is a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Collection for the saints in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, uh, they were, had been experiencing a degree of poverty. If you look in Acts chapter 11, earlier on when Paul and Barnabas were still in Antioch, they actually went down to Jerusalem with a gift from the church in Antioch. Agabus came up, he was a prophet, and he came up and said there's going to be a famine throughout the whole Roman world. And, and the, the response to that uh, this was a reliable prophetic man, and the response to that in Acts 11 um, was that they determined, everyone according to his ability, it says in Acts 11:29, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So there had been this famine, and, and the church in Antioch said, let's, let's send a blessing to the church in Jerusalem. I think the church in Antioch kind of understood some things, more than just the fact that there was a need in Jerusalem, more than just the fact that there was poverty there and, and that they should perhaps relieve that need. They understood, I think, the connectedness between the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch. In a sense, they understood their indebtedness to the Jews, because the Antioch church was largely Gentiles. And I imagine at some, at some point early on, Paul and Barnabas and these men conceived of the church or understood the church rightly that the church is to be one unity. And that there's this, this indebtedness in a sense to the Jews and to the church in Jerusalem. And there's this history of how God has worked throughout time. And he's gathered to himself a covenant people. 
And that has been the nation of Israel. And, and we've been studying in the book of Acts in our care groups about how now is, it's kind of expanding outward and he's including the Gentiles. And they understood that, I think. And they understood that they should pursue an intimate, unified, loving relationship with the church in Jerusalem. So way back in Acts chapter 11, when there was a famine, they said, hey, we should really help those guys out. These are our brothers. These are, because of them and because of their faithfulness, we're here as a church because these guys have, have helped and preserved the Scriptures and walked in God's ways and, and because of their leadership and so forth. We're here as a church and we're experiencing salvation. As Gentiles, we don't deserve it. But God's used these guys and they understood the grace of God. They understood the goodness of God. They understood the connectedness with the Jerusalem church. So they sent a gift down. That was in Acts 11. In Galatians 2, Paul speaks of this time and he says, uh, speaking about the relations with the, the church in Jerusalem and, and about a number of issues, theological issues, one thing he says is, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So he says to the Galatians, when, when I interacted with the church in Jerusalem, we talked about some issues that concern you Galatians, and that's a whole other message about legalism and, and justification in the book of Galatians. Um, he said, we talked about these things. They, asked, they didn't ask us to change any of these key things about the gospel. They only asked us to remember the poor, specifically the church in Jerusalem, which was a poor church. And he said it was the very thing we were eager to do because he understood the connection. And so when Paul came to Corinth, I'm sure he taught on this and the connectedness and the wonder of God of bringing salvation through the Jews to the Gentiles. And in a sense, as Gentiles, our indebtedness to the Jewish people and, and the Jewish Christians in particular. And so he was calling the Corinthians to this. If you read the book of Ephesians, you see it illustrated through the whole book, really, particularly chapters 2 and 3. Paul is speaking to the Ephesians church, and this is a church that has Jew and Gentile together. And he basically says, this is part of how God has shown and will show his glory by taking these two very different peoples, one, a covenant people, of God historically, the, the, the nation of Israel, and one, the, the new covenant with, with the true Israel, one family of God. There's no two families. God has worked in Christ, taking the two and taking the dividing wall of hostility and making them one. And he's displaying through this the wonder and power of the gospel. So unity, particularly at this point, the unity of the Gentile church and the, and the Jewish church displayed the power of the gospel. Dis displayed the glory of God in making them one. And the book of Ephesians is, is much about that message. God demonstrating in his church his glory. Now, we may not face the issue of Jew and Gentile like they did, but we're still experiencing the same because when God comes with the gospel truth and it draws people to Christ and they come to know him, they come to find Him as Savior and Lord. They come and, and turn from self and sin and put their faith in Him and find forgiveness. It draws us to Him, but it draws us together. And God takes diversity and He brings it together in unity around the Gospel. That's for His glory. And I know it's your desire as a church, it's my desire too with you, that our church would be a diverse church. That there would be unity from great diversity because that will show that God is glorious and this gospel is powerful. When people come in and see people truly united from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different, even different countries and even different languages, may God give us that someday soon. 
They're going to say, something's going on here. This is supernatural. This is incredible. That's what Paul was thinking, basically, in teaching the Corinthians about this gift. So it wasn't just about money and helping people in need, though it was about that. It was about the glory of God. And if you study this whole topic in Scripture, you'll see that, that Paul took the gift eventually, and it came from the churches in, in uh, the Greek area, Macedonia and Achaia, that area, and he went to Jerusalem with it. And have you guys read Acts chapter 20 and, and onward? What he does, he goes to Jerusalem, what his attitude is like? Have you read that? He, he says at one point in Acts 21, when, when the same guy Agabus, who had earlier on said there'd be a famine, he's there again, and, and he says, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, and they're going to deliver you over to the, the Gentiles. And, and the people are saying, oh, don't go, don't, what are you doing? They're weeping and so forth. And Paul answers, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul was resolute about going to Jerusalem. Why? To bring this gift. See, if it was just about money, he could have just sent somebody else. I mean, just, you know, why go there? Just put it in a package and send it or something. But it was more than that. It was about the glory of God demonstrated in the unity of the church. And that's why he was so intent on this. And we must understand as, as we look at this passage and as we understand God's ways in dealing with money, it's never about the bottom line primarily. It's about the glory of God. It's about the hearts of His people. It's about unity. It's about God putting His glory and His Son on display through very practical, real ways. So that's what Paul is after. That's what Scripture is after when it speaks about money. And yes, I'm going to talk about giving and money this morning. Probably one of the most uncomfortable things we like to talk about. But, but Jesus was not uncomfortable with it. If you read in Scripture, 15% of his recorded words are actually about money. Exactly. They, the, precisely. Richard Howelson says, Jesus Christ said more about money than any other single thing because when it comes to a man's real nature, money is of first importance. Money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through Scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles money. Money is about the heart. Money is about glory. Our glory or God's glory. That's the bottom line. So this message is not about how we as a church can raise more money. That's not what I'm doing here. Matter of fact, I don't like giving messages like this, to be quite honest. And I feel sorry for you if you brought a guest this morning and you're thinking, oh no, the, the worst time all year to bring a guest when the pastor preaches on money. I, I understand that, but that's not what we're about. We're not about raising money. We're about the glory of God. We're about transformed hearts. We're about understanding from Scripture the truth behind this and then the life and the fruit that comes from that. Whether it means lots of money or no money, for any of us personally, let's just put that all aside. It's about the glory of God. It's about His ways. It's about fruit in our lives. And my desire is to do the best to represent God's truth and be able to step outside of this uncomfortable topic and, and remove any self-interest from it. And in, in actuality, I, I don't have a whole lot of self-interest in it. God called me to pastor not, not to make money. And any guy that pastors to make money is, a, is just a dope. And he's, also, he's just also unscript, unscriptural. It's never to be a motivation for ministry of any sort. 
Um, I had a job where I was much more comfortable. I'm actually very comfortable now, but I had a job where I had a great income. So for me, I think that, that self-interest has been removed to a degree. But nevertheless, God's word is God's word. And so let his word have its way with us this morning as he instructs us and challenges us and leads us to something better than what we've known. See, we live in a society that just stews in all sorts of ideas about money that are, that are just off. Our culture is centered on money. T.S. Eliot, after the Munich Agreement, that was where, where uh, Lord Chamberlain capitulated to Hitler in, in their agreement back before World War II. T.S. Eliot, he's a believer, the poet in England. He's actually from America, lived in England. He says, questioning, thinking about this time, he says, was our society assembled around anything more than a collection of banks insurance companies and industries? And had it any beliefs more essential than a belief in compound interest and the maintenance of dividends? He thought, what are we about as a nation, as, as the West? Is it, is it so much about money that we're willing to sell our soul to a Hitler? And if we look at our society and we look what we stew in, it's all around us, folks. It's all around us, and we are part of it. Some surveys that are done, it's interesting. Half of Americans would rather have more free time, even if it means less money. But, compared to the 1950s, Americans are twice as rich, but less happy. Their average buying power has doubled since the 50s. But the survey of those who are very happy has declined. 82% of Americans say we, should buy and consume, we do buy and consume more than we need. Yet, it doesn't make a difference. We still keep on going. 150 gallons of water per day, 3.3 pounds of food, 15 pounds of fossil fuel, and 120 gallons of sewage per household, I think this is, per day. Two-thirds of Americans say they would be happier if they had more time to spend with family and friends. Yet, teenagers see 360,000 advertisements by the time they graduate high school. 93% of American teenage girls say shopping is their favorite pastime. Now, I'm not trying to say there's anything wrong with shopping. What I'm trying to say, though, is we live in this culture where we're... Where we're, where, uh, I forget the word. We're confused. We're basically wondering, you know, we, we realize something's wrong here. We realize that, that conflict, that's what I want to say. We, we realize something's wrong here. We realize it just isn't right, yet we just keep find ourselves going with the flow and living for materialism. We live in a, we live in a broken world, and, and we haven't got this right, and God's Word offers us some truth. It offers us some truth. Francis Schaeffer and speaking about this, brought it home. And I think we need to understand, as we talk about society and how broken society is, and as we hear quotes like Andrew, Andrew Carnegie saying, millionaires seldom smile and so forth, that we realize it's more than just about them. It's more than just about our society. It's about us. And we have to really think, and we have to let the Word of God work in our lives to say, what am I doing? How does my life measure up against the mirror of Scripture? Francis Schaeffer says that those who are struggling today, those who are far away and doing that which is completely contrary to the Christian conscience are not the first to be blamed. It is my generation and the generation that preceded me who turned away. Today we are left not only with a religion and a church without meaning, but a culture without meaning. We live in a culture that because of the machine of economics has driven us to the point where we're fragmented and people are wondering, what's it about? Um, if you've read some of the Lord of the Rings. J.R. Tolkien talks, he, he, he has the hobbits and he has the orcs. And I believe he has that to illustrate something. 
The orcs were all about the, the industrial military machine. And the hobbits were about villages and relationship. And I'm not trying to advocate, we all go live in villages, I'm not saying that. But, but there, was a, there was a difference there between them. The, the, the hobbits had a society, they had meaning, they had relationship, the orcs didn't. I would say that in this, as a society, in many ways, we are marching towards orcdom. And the economy and the, and the philosophy that, that is kind of a river flowing is sweeping us along with it. And when Paul says, considering the collection for the saints, there's a lot of stuff there that was hitting them because they're in the same place. Their culture was very much like ours, a materialistic, shallow culture. They, they essentially, functionally did not believe in God. They did not believe in much. They believed in pleasure. They believed in materialism. It was a shallow, empty culture, very much like ours. So when Paul said these things, there was a lot with that. He wanted to bring challenge to them. and He wanted to release them from orkdom to experience kingdom giving. That's what he wanted. See, Romans chapter 1 and, and so forth describes our situation. It says in Romans chapter 1 that speaking of the nations and speaking of us even, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to them, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles for money and things like that. The brokenness of our humanity wants to find life and money and in stuff. And the Gospel comes in and Christ comes in and He wants to destroy that all and change it all and turn it upside down for us. We're warned to beware. We're warned about this reality of materialism and what it does. Luke 12, Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let me say that again. Because the opposite is being said to us every day, and we may be saying the opposite to ourselves. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life is not related to how much you have. Your life is not related to the things that you possess. Your life is not related to your income level. There's something much more our lives to be related to. And it, it's from Romans 1 we see we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for things made to look like man and animals and created things and, and stuff. And money buys stuff. And that's, there's no life there. And our society lives that way. And it sweeps us along. And if we are not aware of it, we're going to go right along with the tide. And we're going to live this conflicted life of, of reading in Scripture about Gospel-centeredness and, and seeing all these things and then doing something different. And, and you can only go so long doing that before you realize this is just, it doesn't work. Well, why doesn't it work? Because we haven't allowed the Gospel to come in and infiltrate how we view money and how we view finances. God wants to do that. I believe He wants to begin the conversation with some of us this morning. Let me just give you a little evaluation that may help you see how much this rel relates to you. What gets you most excited? Take your pulse this morning. Take your pulse as I say the following things. What gets you most exciting? excited? Your time 
praying and reading the word with the Lord. Maybe some excitement. Family prayer time. Church. Your local church. Sunday morning. Small groups. Jesus returning. I think there'll be some excitement here for that. Thank God. New heaven and new earth. Paying off your mortgage early. A brand new sport utility vehicle. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. A winning lottery ticket. Ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. Now again, nothing wrong with any of those things. The, the question really is, is where is our excitement? Where is our life? Where are we running to? What are we hoping in? The draw of the lottery game is just that. It's saying, here's something to hope in. Here's something that will make your life worth it. Now, I, I, personally, I don't think there's, I don't have anything, anything against lottery tickets. I think it can end up being a sinful thing, but in and of itself, not wrong. So again, don't, get, don't hear what I'm not saying. But part of the hope there, part of the attraction to the lottery is put your hope here. You can have money. And if you have money, you'll have life. And Jesus says, no, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. There's something more. There's God in His glory. There's God in His glory. And so we stew in this. It's our experience. And, and, and we can look at our lives and, and if we're careful to see, we will see areas where there is this Basic idolatry of finding our life in stuff instead of in God. And He wants to address it. He wants to be Lord and Savior of every area of your life and my life. See, Christianity is not a bunch of ideas that are abstracted from life. God is not a God who is just a God of ideas in the spiritual realm and somehow removed from reality. The Gospel is not about a truth that's just kind of a cool truth that makes you feel better about yourself, though it is that and much more. It's about a truth that is so transforming, so incredible, that it turns your life upside down and turns my life upside down. Matter of fact, the truth of the Gospel of Christ dying for sin and rising again, reigning and returning, is so radical actually that it speaks to the impact of the Gospel. It's going to change the whole universe. This message is about the one who is going to change everything. And when the gospel is grasped, when we start to understand the reality of Christ fulfilling all the covenants, all the things that God had required, fulfilling them by dying, living, dying, and rising again, and now He's going to be returning, when we start to grasp that He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the center of all history, it starts to impact our lives. It starts to have its way. And that's what the book of Corinthians is about. Paul wants them to be impacted by the Gospel in every way. The Gospel is not just an idea. It's, it's powerful for salvation. And that salvation means in every aspect... Yes, being justified the day that you believe. Yes, standing forgiven and free. Totally free. Totally forgiven. Totally His. Joy. You can never do anything better than that than to merely receive what He does. His justification, which is all from Him. We just bring our sin. He even gives us the faith we have. That is salvation. That is the core and the key. But there's more to it. Salvation also means Him changing the way we live our lives financially. Financially in every way, economically. And one day, even all of society will be changed as His kingdom comes in its fullness. And, and our society and its brokenness is done away with and a new heaven and earth are here. So this message and this section is about the incredible news of Christ, our Savior and Lord, and how it compels us to be living and giving in accordance with the Gospel. 
Now, it looks like, that's just my introduction, it looks like the Corinthians didn't really like what Paul said. Because if we read in 2 Corinthians, the conversation continued. And you can kind of tell that they probably didn't like what he said and, and were resisting it. Matter of fact, there, there seems to have been a, another letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians, or at least a, a conversation that was very heated, and then 2 Corinthians came. And so if we want to kind of understand more about what he was getting at and the truths behind it and the truths that would impact us, we, we ought to turn to 2 Corinthians. So you can turn there. We'll be looking in chapters 8 and 9 where this same conversation about the gift to the saints continues. And there's some truths that Paul brings to the Corinthians that I believe are meant to transform their giving and their view towards money and finances. And God's Word is sufficient for us this morning. My, tr- my trust is that He will use these things to change us, to begin to change us, and to glorify His name. So if you look there, we're just going to be touching different aspects of it. He starts out in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So Paul uses the example of the Macedonians. And these Macedonians were poor. And Paul actually didn't solicit them directly, it appears, to partake in the the offering. Because he understood they're poor. And that's one principle through this. It's according to means. Paul doesn't call poor people to give everything they have. It's proportional. But the Macedonians were so full of joy that Paul has this wonderful phrase, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have come together. Their abundance of joy in the Gospel, understanding the grace of God in their lives and the goodness of God, their joy with their poverty have come together to flow together, to overflow in a wealth of generosity on their part. The combination of their joy and the fact that they didn't have much equated to great generosity. And so Paul is using them by way of an example to the Corinthians who were not poor, who were pretty prosperous. The city of Corinth was much like the city of Boston. And they were fairly prosperous. And he's using the example of the poor Macedonians to say, guys, this this is the heart. These guys have demonstrated what happens when the gospel gets a hold of someone. They want to be able to give somehow. And that's to be our heart. We we are to be people who are so affected by this that we want to give. And yes, there might be seasons where where we can't or we have to be more careful than others, but we will want to be people. Give me an opportunity to somehow give to God's people, to somehow be part of what He's doing. And there there is multifaceted ways to do that. There's many ways to do that. And, And I am aware that you guys in many ways do this so well. When there's needs here, I I have people coming to me saying, can I give to this? We, uh, back when the tsunami hit, uh, this little church gave $3,500, more than $3,500. That's amazing. That's amazing for us. We were smaller then, too, I believe. We gave lots to that. You guys responded. And so I believe that the gospel is gripping you, and you're looking for opportunities. That's the heart Paul's getting after with the Corinthians. That's the heart that he wants. The heart of a Christian giver, one who's motivated by the Gospel, a heart transformed by the Gospel, is one that is full of the awareness of God's grace. 
The awareness of his goodness and is overflowing with joy and wants opportunities to, to, in a sense, give back, though we never could. To just to say, I've been blessed so much, I want to give. I want to be part of what God's doing. That's the heart. See, they grasped grace. And Paul, in that section, in chapters 8 and 9, he uses the word grace over and over. Matter of fact, the word gift is the same word, basically, as grace. They understood grace. When we understand grace, it will begin to motivate us more and more to give. Grace in the Bible means a free, unmerited gift. It has a connotation even more than that. Grace was what a, a ruler gave to an unworthy subject because that ruler was good and had nothing in the subject that mer- warranted, that merited, that earned it. So with grace is the idea that a ruler just says, I'm going to bless this one. Not because this one's great, but because I am good and I'm loving. And so the Macedonians, I believe, had grasped grace. That God had given His Son to die for sinners, undeserving sinners. And He had willingly and freely taken on Himself the sins of rebels against Him. And had paid for that sin completely. And had risen again. And then had worked by the Holy Spirit to awaken that one to behold the gift. You can be given the gift. The the gospel is to be presented to everybody, to every person. But there are many who are going to look at that gift and not understand it and not not receive it. They're not going to just open it. God himself, Scripture I believe teaches us, gives us that ability to see this is a gift. And it's free and it's from God. And then we open it and receive it and enjoy it. And the Macedonians, I believe, understood that, that we are here as a church and we are forgiven and we have a future that's sure and eternal because it's been a gift. And so we want to give back. So Paul, please give us just the privilege of giving something to the poor in Jerusalem. And so he uses them as an example. 2 Corinthians uh, later on says, For you know the grace of our Lord, you know the the gift, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that, that you by His poverty might become rich. That message, when it begins to impact us, motivates us to be free and to give. Verse for me in Romans 8, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He gave His Son for me. He's going to take care of me if He gave me His Son so I can risk financially to give to His causes. I can do things that the the economic advisors would say are just stupid, like give 10% or more of my income or whatever to the cause because if He gave me His Son, I can trust Him to give me all things. I can risk. I can go for it. We can make career moves. We can take lesser jobs to be able to be available for the Lord or whatever it might be because... He's God, and He's been gracious to us. And He's given us His Son, and He will surely take care of us in every way. Now, I'm not advocating foolishness, but I am advocating risk and trust and faith. That's what the Lord would call us to. And He calls us to it to give freely. Paul teaches in here, each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God wants people to give freely. He doesn't set up a rule saying, you must do this. To be a member of my church, you must give X amount. He doesn't do that. He calls them to freely give because you're freely received. Freely give. He doesn't want it under compulsion. Each one must decide 
in his heart what he is to give in response to God's grace, not under compulsion. We're not to be like Ananias and Sapphira who said, well, I'm going to give something to look good, but I'm not really going to give it and receive judgment as a result. It's not about show. It's not about meeting a standard. It's about sincerity, integrity. It's about worship. It's about being affected by the grace of God and giving freely. That's what the Scriptures teach us. That's what Paul was calling them to. It's not about being stingy and holding back and pretending one thing. Like the farmer who owned two calves, one brown, one white. He said that he was going to give one to the Lord, but he didn't say which. One day, the wolves attacked his cows and one of the cows died. And he said, oh, too bad the, Lord, the Lord's cow died. God doesn't want us to be like that. He wants us to be free and, and, and give joyfully to Him. Not compelled by law, but free. It's a sign of a heart that's been transformed. God wants us to, to trust Him, to risk for Him. Stanley Gale, in speaking of the, this matter, says, the responsibility of the one who by the grace of God has become a citizen of heaven and therefore an alien and sojourner in this world is to bring all his being, energies, efforts, and desires to the untiring, uncompromising, unabated service of the king in his kingdom. And I would say freely motivated by grace. And he contrasts this with the warrior. The warrior exhibits a possessiveness and protectiveness of his own kingdom, which is in opposition to God's. Worry reveals where his heart is, and therefore where his treasure is. Jesus teaches on this in Matthew 6. And he calls us to trust him, and to give to him, in response to grace. And it has this wonderful effect on us as well. When we give to him, we find that our heart goes where our gift goes. And so it's not just a response to grace, but it but also feeds our sense of valuing the kingdom. We don't want to be those who value other things. We want to value the kingdom. So there's this kingdom-mindedness that the people of God are called to. We are to set our sights on things above. We are to set our sights on what the Lord is doing. And we can do that, and we do that with our finances. Are you worried about your finances? Now, I'm not saying that you should just like forget it and just go ahead and spend money and not look at your bank account and not be frugal and not be a good steward. Not at all. But there's a difference between being faithful and a good steward and watching your bank account to make sure you don't overthraw and so forth and having a budget and worrying. A warrior has their affections, their attention given to the thing they worry about. And if you are a warrior, I would, I would submit that perhaps your heart is not in the right place. Perhaps your eyes are not on the right place. If our eyes are on our finances, our, if, our, if our eyes, if our heart, mind says life does consist in abundance of possessions, where are our eyes going to go? To our possessions. And then as our possessions go up and down, where is our heart going to go? It's going to have worry. We're going to worry. Christ says, look to me. I'm your Savior. I'm your greatest possession. You will always have me. So do not fear, little flock. I'm pleased to give you the kingdom. He says that in context of money. Do not fear. Trust in me. I provide. He uses that illustration in Matthew 6 of providing for the birds and the, and the flowers. He says, come and set your eyes on me and trust me. And I will provide. And do not worry, but worship. And then let your finances follow. You can take risk when your eyes are fixed on Him. When your eyes are fixed on possessions, you, you worry. 
and you won't take risks. God wants to free you and free us from that. He wants to free us from worry. First thing is to look to Him and understand His grace and His goodness, that He is our treasure. And then to fall through with that, with giving to His purposes and to Him. And as we do that, He says, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. There's a kingdom-mindedness that's to come about in the Christian's life. And that's what Paul's getting at with the Corinthians. He calls them to this gift for the church in Jerusalem so that they would grow in their kingdom-mindedness so that it, in a sense, would be a, a, a cure in part to their worldliness, to understand the ramifications of the gospel in terms of how they relate to their finances. We are to be kingdom-minded. God is doing something in the world that is fantastic. That's amazing. That's beyond our comprehension. The kingdom of God has come and is growing. And one day it will be finished and, and consummated is the word. It will be finished and, it, and all the nations, people from every tribe and language and tongue will be part of this kingdom. He's growing His kingdom. His eyes, His attention are not, is, are not his attention is not on economics, per se. His attention is on, isn't on the stock market, per se. Nothing wrong with that. His attention isn't on how prosperous America is. His attention is not on the free trade agreement. His attention is not on the G4 summit or anything like that. G8 summit, isn't it? it it's not on that. His attention is on the kingdom of God going forth in the world and the glory of His Son being manifest, and people are being swept up into that, and the economics of the kingdom are way different than the economics of the world. And, there, and when we are invited into His covenant people, we begin to experience kingdom economics. And there's a difference when we give our money to Him and participate in what He's doing financially. There's a reward. There's a blessing. And it's eternal. There's an eternal investment. And I know sometimes it just sounds like, well, that's just one of those phrases that the money raisers give. And maybe it is. But it's true. And when we get gripped by the gospel and gripped by the kingdom that he's building, we will want to invest and give. Whether it's the saints in Jerusalem, whether it's the poor in Sri Lanka after the tsunami, whether it's the local church, whatever it might be, we'll start to do that. That's what Paul's calling them to. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 16. While we do that, I just want to mention, we, in New England, many of us have a heart to see the gospel and the kingdom of God expand in New England. There's a sad reality right now. The, if you survey churches in New England, the average giving in the churches is about 2%. It, it's, it's, about, it's not really much different than it is outside in society. It's about 2%. And God wants us to call, He wants to call us to be kingdom-minded and affected by the gospel that we might give generously. Now, you know, bottom line, whether it's 2 or 3% doesn't matter. The, the, the question is, are we giving in faith? Are we giving with our eyes on Christ? Are we giving generously? Are we giving in a way that's risking? And I just think about us as a local church, as part of what God's doing in New England, and I desire, and I know you do, that he would grow up this church, and he would mature us in him, and that we would one day be able to plant churches. And when we go to do that, folks, I want, with all my being, if, if we can, as a church, Grow up people who understand kingdom giving and understand kingdom generosity and we can send them out on a plant knowing that they are going to support that plant wholeheartedly. And, and whether that's 2 or 20 or 50%, there's that wholeheartedness and health to that plant. 
If we want to plant churches, we've got to get there. Because we cannot send people out into the pastures and, as I said, by and large, scatter people. Let us donate even more and ensure even more so that we can not be another statistic of skimpiness, of, 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 of stinginess, of stinginess, but of kingdom generosity. Now, going back to 1 Corinthians 15, there's some clues here to uh, how our giving can be done. Paul says, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so also you do on the first day of every week. For each one of you is to put something aside and store it up. So Paul's calling them to regular giving. Now, this is a special gift for the church of Galatia, but he's calling them to regular giving. I think this is good news. Sometimes we can have a heart to give, and we like the Macedonians, and we say, I want to give. I want to be part of this. And if you're like me, you just say, yeah, I, I just keep going. And, and the good news is that this is what God wants to bless us. And here they were blessed and encouraged by a regular giving. And he's calling them to do that, to be regular. If you're not regular, you will be irregular. You will forget if you're not here regularly. But he calls them to that. He calls each of them, each of you. So the whole church is part of this. It's not just the attendance of one church. Every member which is, by world standards, almost probably 100% of the folks here, if not close, maybe 98% of our folks are wealthy by the world standards. I would warn us to be very careful of not offering them a prayer because we are wealthy. Money has an effect. Money is like, it works like gravity. The more you have, the more it pulls you. And it's, it's interesting, this proportional call here in Scripture is for a reason. If you look in society, because of that truth that money is like, has a gravitational pull. The more you have, the more, the more it pulls you. The statistics on giving are inverted. It's really, really amazing. Nearly half total contributions to charity in the U.S. come from households with income below 30000 Half. Now, basically, as you go up in income, the giving goes down proportionally with that. It's not just that, you know, it goes down proportionally. It's that it goes down totally. So half the income for those comes from those under 30,000. There's uh, statistics out there you can get on what's called the generosity index. It ranks the different states, not statistics, on the generosity. It takes what they, what they have, the prosperity of that state, called the having index, and it takes their giving rank, what they, how much they give, compares them, does some proportion, and calls the generosity index. The number one state for generosity is the number one state for poverty. The state that gives proportionally the most is the poorest state in the country. 
generosity is just a number of Christians. Can you guess the two states that are the number 49 in Christian giving index? Very close. You're in one of them. Massachusetts, number 49. New Hampshire, number 15. They are some of the wealthiest states. Massachusetts is the third wealthiest state in the United States. New Hampshire is the ninth wealthiest state in the United States. So this wisdom of proportionality that means you have to ask yourself some questions. If we are fairly well off, are we giving proportionally to thousands of people? You guys have been there. I'm aware of the great generosity story. I'm not looking to get into any of the details. I just want you to ask yourself, given what I have, given how many people I've had, am I being generous? Or am I making an appeal for our fund here? Asking them, as far as I'm concerned, you can give to Rob Felder's fund. I think the local church does have priority. That's another message, but, but I mean, I want to remove that factor because this message is about kingdom giving. If I have a lot, am I giving all the more? Not only for the glory of God, but also for your good because it has a gravitational pull. And if you don't give, it's gonna, if you don't give it away, it's going to take you and you're going to give yourself to it. So there's wisdom in this proportionality. And then there are promises the band comes up and I'll try to finish. There are promises of God. He's so good. I mean, he, it, it's not like God has to give us anything in return. He's worthy of all these things. He's already been so good to us to give us his son that it should be, let me just give it without any return. But he promises a return. He promises blessing. So Paul speaks about this, that those who sow generously will reap generously. There's a promise in scripture later on in chapter nine. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Paul's basically saying, as you guys sow generously, God is going to sow back and you're going to reap generously. You're going to receive back. It's a promise. God is a generous God. Now, I don't think there's a guarantee in Scripture that means necessarily financially you get more than you give. I would say overall my experience is that you end up doing that. Most people I see who give regularly and give generously do receive back more. But, this, but I don't think I can say for sure. But there is a promise that you will reap generously in many ways, in multiple ways. You will reap generously. And so we are to give with that promise in mind, knowing that he's a good God who gives back. Malachi 3, bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven to you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will find a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God challenges the people of God in Malachi. Give and watch me give back. Some would argue, well, that's the Old Testament people of God. And yes, it is, but we are the people of God, and there is much that applies from that passage. 
God promises to bless us as we bring it to his ears. He doesn't have to, but he does. Be good, be generous. There's testimonies in this room of that. I've seen God supply for lots of families. God has been so faithful to give. So that was a testimony from my kids. God is real. The fact that we are making way less than we ever did doing this, but you don't feel it. God has supplied in many ways. It just hasn't come through the normal means of my check. It's come through other means. And I'm so glad for that. Because these guys, as they grow up, they're going to remember what God has done. They're going to remember the trip to Italy we had last summer. which We didn't pay for And it was a wonderful blessing. And it may sound kind of scandalous, a pastor and his family get to go to Italy, but it was, it was the grace of God for that. And, and that, not only is it a memory of Italy, but it's a memory of God's provision. God is a God of generous. And as we give to him, he gives back and he blesses us in multiple ways. We can't measure it. We don't know how it's going to come, but it will come. And it does come. He is good. He is good. In this passage, well, one other example. Uh, this is just an interesting one. I just the, We are invited by God to participate in what he's doing. And, and many of us may not know the story of, of Selena Shirley during the Great Awakening. We know about Whitfield and Rustin and, and these men. What we may not know about is who was behind these men to some degree financing what they did. It's one of the greatest revivals in history. The, the, really, the United States was totally changed by this. A lot of the good that we now experience is the leftover from this revival just 200 or more years ago, almost 300 years ago. And it was God using men, but God was using a person behind them, financing them and sponsoring them. Selena Shirley is her name. She's also called Lady Huntington. She was part of the British royal family, and God saved her. And she used her position, her influence, and her finances to fund that. God calls us to participate in what he's doing. And, I mean, he could, he could raise up a Lady Huntington anytime. It's not, that, it's not that if there isn't a Lady Huntington, it doesn't happen. God will do that. But he invites us to be part of it. And you just think, well, what a blessing. I am, I am looking forward to meeting this woman. And she probably couldn't preach or whatever. I don't know. But just saying, thank you. Thank you for giving to these men. And the difference it made. And now, even now, today, we enjoy the fruit of her life. That's what God calls us to. He will bless us and reward us. And it will respond in much thanksgiving, Paul says in the letter in chapter 9. The result is thanksgiving and glory to God. And we just demonstrate that. God uses us. God brings him glory. That's what was going on. That's what Paul anticipated with the Corinthians as they gave to the Houston church, that it would bring much thanksgiving and much glory to God. John Piper Speaking of this, speaking of the passage in Luke 12 that calls us to sell our possessions and give, and Jesus says, fear not. He says, Jesus knows that this message strikes fear into the hearts of his disciples. And perhaps this morning, that's what you're experiencing. When I say these things, there is fear in many of you that God's will for you might be a lifestyle very different than the one you are striving for or living in. Jesus knows that this is a fearful message. He knows this is a fearful message. And so he says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
The pathway to the kingdom, Piper says, is the path of falling in love with King Jesus, trusting our Heavenly Father, falling out of love with things, and taking on a wartime lifestyle that maximizes all income for the cause of the kingdom. And since this is the pathway that leads to the kingdom, and since Jesus says our Father will give us the kingdom, then we can be assured of God's help to stay on this path.